Jonah 3, verse 1. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> and all God's people said, praise God. Now, the first time the word of the Lord came to Jonah was the first chapter. And God said, I want you to arise and go to Nineveh. And you're going to go preach. And Jonah said, oh no, I won't go. And he got on a ship and he went the other way. And the Bible uses the word down over and over again for Jonah's experience running from God. And you can't run from God, right? But Jonah went down into the ship, down into the sea, down into the sea monster, down into the depths. Talk about a downward spiral. And it was because he ran from God. And if you run from God, the only place to go is down. You're not going to go up. You're going to go down. And that was Jonah. And of course, as the story unfolds, we know that he ends up in the ship. He goes overboard. He knows the storm is his fault. And he is swallowed up by a custom-made fish just for the occasion. And in a tight spot, in a difficult moment of his life, probably wondering, am I going to live or die? And probably thinking more like I'm going to die, Jonah prayed. I'd like to read chapter 2 to you because I think it'll just remind you of the setting. Then Jonah 2.1 prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Now people argue about what's the best place to pray, your closet, you know, uh, private room, outside in creation. Well, I'll tell you this, the stomach of a fish is a high motivator <laughs> to pray. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me, Jonah 2.2. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation, literally Yeshua, the name of Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, do you think that once Jonah was vomited up onto dry land, he was a new man? I would say he was. And any of you who have ever come to the point where you're wondering if you were going to make it, you were wondering, you know, you came to that fork in the road and you were wondering, man, am I even going to live? Am I even going to be able to see another year? And you realize some dry land. You realize that, you know, God uh, gave you a second chance. Man, there's nothing like that. It's a motivator to live the right way. 
when we stop taking things for granted. And I'm sure Jonah was a new man. And uh, he had a new, fresh passion for what God had called him to do. Imagine if it were you for a moment. Imagine if you were in the belly of a sea monster and wondering if you were going to ever get out and you ended up on dry land. Can you imagine how long you just, you'd be grabbing the sand on the beach? Can you imagine the surfers walking by? If there were surfers at that time, dude, whoa, where have you come from, man? And Jonah had a whale of a tale to tell. He had a fish story of all fish stories. It was this, this, this big. And it'd be true. And Jonah now has a second chance. Would you note it in Jonah 3.1? The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. A second chance. You know, uh, we could say that God is the God of second chances, but the truth is that God is the God of 999th chances. <laughs> I mean, how many times has the word of the Lord come to you and you dismissed it or you didn't obey? And, you know, once Jonah had been vomited out of the sea monster, God could have just said to Jonah, go home. Yes, you're alive, but I no longer want to use you because it's obvious that you don't obey my commands. I'm going to get somebody else. Just go home, Jonah. Go get a regular job. God could have done that. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is so faithful to give us second chances. Some of you have had a calling on your life and you've run from it. And that's not a comfortable place to be. And maybe the word of the Lord has come to you multiple times and God has said, I want to use you in this area. Would you submit to me now? And I think the question becomes, what will it take? I don't know how long, uh, how long Jonah waited, uh, but he was ready to fulfill the vow that he had made. I, I think we've all probably made vows uh, in tight spaces. You know, maybe you were uh, in a tough spot and you made a vow to God and you said, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I will do what you've called me to do. Anybody? There's an old movie, I'm trying to remember the, the, the movie, where it's Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. You guys remember the movie? I can't remember the title of it. But anyway, Burt Reynolds is out in the ocean, and he thinks he's going to drown. And he's making deals with God as he's trying to swim to the shore. And it, I think he starts with, uh, God, I'll give you 80%. 80%, get me out of this one. And then he's getting a little closer to the shore. And then it's 50%. And then a little closer to the shore, 30%. And a little, uh, 10%. Right? We're good at making promises when we think we have no way out. But Jonah says, what I vowed, I will pay. Peter got a second chance after he denied the Lord, remember? He said to the Lord, though all forsake you, I will die for you. And Jesus said, will you, Peter? This very night, you will deny that you even know me. Three times. And Peter, was, Peter went back fishing Remember, he said, I'm going fishing, and the Lord was on the seashore, and they caught nothing. And the Lord from the shore said, have you caught anything? <laughs> and Peter said, oh, that's the Lord. Did a cannonball into the ocean, started swimming. I don't know if he did a cannonball. And he ended up on the shore, and the Lord had fish 
there prepared, and he said, come, let's have some breakfast. And there Peter got restored to his calling. And Jesus said to Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you, you know that I love you. The th- by the third time, Peter was grieved that the Lord had asked him three times. Peter had denied the Lord how many times? Three times. At a similar firelight. And then Jesus recommissioned Peter and said, Then you go feed my sheep. You do what I've called you to do. You keep what you have vowed to do. You said you would never leave me. You said you would love me to the end. I'm recommissioning you. Over the years, uh, I've shared with the congregation and even groups of people at memorial services that I have a friend that went to the mission field and he's now pastoring in Temecula. And he addressed a group of people like this and he said, you know, um, some of you have walked away from a calling and you've gone back fishing like Peter. And then he paused and said, how is it? And I think whenever we run from God, we end up in places that we don't want to be. But the word of the Lord comes a second time. I'm a bit of a golfer, and I love the idea of a mulligan. Anybody out there? All right, mulligans are wonderful things, because a mulligan is a do-over. Now, how many of you need a life mulligan right now? (laughs) Right? And usually in golf, it's something like this. You hit your ball and you go, oh no! And your fellow players pray and we wait for the breaking of glass and then if there's no broken glass or no meow or then we we set another ball down. Mulligan! Now, some people have issues with mulligans until you're the one who needs a mulligan. (laughs) Mulligans are pretty cool. God gives mulligans. I had Pastor John look up the idea of a mulligan. I guess it comes from the 1920s. There was a guy with the last name of Mulligan. And he showed up on the first tee, and he said his hands were numb from driving all the distance to get to the golf course. So his first shot went amiss. And he said, my hands are numb. I've got a hangnail. That's why that thing went that way. Uh, Could I get a do-over? And they said, okay, Mulligan. Anyway, (laughs) apparently that's a true story. We found it on Wikipedia. It's got to be true. (laughs) And so Jonah is now going to be recommissioned. This is from the pulpit commentary. Jonah is better prepared for it than he was. He has sinned and been forgiven. He has suffered and been delivered. He has prayed and received an answer. And each experience of the nature of a qualification for the better doing of his work. Rejoicing in the sweetness of fresh and full reconciliation, lightened in his spirit by tasting in God a mercy larger than he could formerly have thought of, cleansed from the darkness that brooded over his soul, and the countless countless images of terror of evil which rose up before him while he was fleeing from God in rebellion, and his God was pursuing him in wrath. He would approach his master's work as never before. Reverence for God so great and good and gratitude to God so merciful and kind would spring together and work together the new mind and way. 
Affliction, moreover, had left its mark on him. He was subdued and chastened. He knew experimentally his impotence and God's omnipotence. He could speak by book of the terrors of the Lord and the silliness of hoping to defy him and escape. And his preaching would have a reality and vividness about it attainable only by way of his late experience. Some of you have a story to tell, and it's a story that comes from pain. And it's motivated you to tell people about the goodness of God. It's given you a sense of urgency that life doesn't go on forever, and there's a gospel to be preached to a lost and dying world. Amen? And I pray that in this new year, we'll recapture that fervency. And so God says, verse 2, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Arise and go. Here's a second chance. Go and proclaim. Go and tell the story. Here's an application. For many of us, it's not about receiving a new revelation in 2019, about our call or our life. It's about obeying the one that we already have. Amen? We don't necessarily need a new revelation, a lightning bolt from heaven. We just need to obey what we already know. And that's Jonah's case. He'd already been told what to do. And now he needed to go preach the saving message of Jesus. Of course, he's preaching in the Old Testament, but he's preaching about the same God, the same God that saves. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Paul writes to Timothy, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Are we here? What other message, pray tell, should we preach other than the one that saves? Why would we waste our time preaching anything else except a message that is going to bring the saving power of God to people who need it? So Jonah is told, you go and you preach what I tell you to preach. So Jonah arose, verse 3, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Most scholars believe a three days walk is the size of the city. And there's some different accounts of the size of the city. Eight miles seems to be the city proper, but with its districts and so forth, it's probably about 55 to 60 miles around. And so Jonah would have, he, he had some time to get to the city, maybe by camel or by horse, or maybe he walked, I don't know. But he got there and he started walking around the city and he had a message from God. And the message was very simple and very clear. I don't know how long it took him to preach the message. I don't know how long he surveyed the uh, situation or the city. But he went three days. Three days walk. The city wall of Nineveh had a circumference of about eight miles. The reference of three days is largely to the large administrative uh, area that made up the district of Nineveh, made up of several cities. As I mentioned, a circumference of about 55 miles. Imagine if you were told, God told you, go around the city of Corona 
for the next three days and preach the message that I've called you to preach. How many of you would say, okay, Lord, what is it? Imagine if your message was, 40 days and Corona will be destroyed. You think you'd be a popular person in the city? You'd be like one of those sandwich board people, you know, you wear the sign, repent, turn or burn, baby. People are saying, what's wrong with you? It's Christmas, we're coming into a new year. Can you imagine that? That would be a tough gig. I mean, we all want to lead with the love of Jesus, amen? <laughs> Jesus loves you, I've got good news for you. But imagine if your message was, hey, 40 days and this city's rubble. That would be a tough gig. And on top of that, Jonah didn't want to go preach to these people in the first place. I, I believe it's not that Jonah didn't love God. I think it was that he didn't love the people that he was called to preach to. Imagine if it wasn't the city of Corona. Imagine if it was a city somewhere in the Middle East where it was very difficult. Maybe you had some, you were a bit torn about whether or not you even wanted to bother. Let's be honest. Sometimes love your neighbor as yourself sounds good until you try it. And what should motivate our evangelism, please hear this, is love. What should motivate our evangelism is compassion. Our God is full of compassion and loving kindness. He had compassion on you when you were in your rebellion. So Jonah had to have God's heart. And Jonah became a sign, Jesus says, Luke eleven thirty, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man, Jesus, be to this generation. Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. No fish story. <laughs> it was true. Maybe he had become a bit of an albino because of the stomach acids of the fish. I don't know what his exterior looked like, but I know Jonah had a fire in his eyes. <laughs> And he went into the city, and he began to preach the message. He arose, he went around, and he began preaching. This, the name Nineveh, by the way, is derived from the name Nimrod. It means the residence of Nimrod, and in the Akkadian language, it is fish. Nimrod was the ruler of ancient Babylon, and his name is all over this connection to Nineveh. Um, write this down for your notes. It says in Genesis 10, 11, from that land, after founding uh, the land of uh, Babel, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh. This is Genesis 10, 11. So the whole Babylonian system connected to Nineveh was in rebellion to God. And the Ninevites had an ancient story that someone named Yanush came out of the sea and began to teach them the way of life. Can you imagine? God has set this up so that Jonah will have a little bit further credibility because in their own history they have a story of a man that comes out of the sea and they worship a God that is half fish, half man. And now Jonah's come into town, maybe still wearing the seaweed turban, and he's like, hey, I came out of the sea to tell you guys about God. And they're like, whoa. 
maybe this is true. <laughs> Holy mackerel. You know, anyway. So Jonah began to go through the city, verse 4, one day's walk. And he cried out and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. If you have an NIV, it says overturned. If you have the New Living Translation, it says Nineveh will be destroyed. You've got 40 days. Have a nice day. <laughs> go to a local restaurant. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Have a good day. <laughs> That's your preaching gig. It's a short message, but it's to the point. 40 days. Now, we know the number 40 is significant in the Bible, right? It rained in the flood for 40 days and 40 nights. We know Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights as he received the law. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the number 40, when you begin to look at that number, it's a number that speaks of testing and preparation. You've got 40 days. Can you imagine if somebody told you that you had 40 days left on this planet? What would you do? What would you change? What would you do different in the next 40 days? If you knew for sure that's all I've got. And then if God's merciful, I'll continue. And if not, I'm going to face him. You know, you need to live your life like you don't even know if you have tomorrow, says James. But we don't tend to live with that kind of urgency. And so 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. You've got 40 days. The Ninevites responded. The people of Nineveh, what's your Bible say? They believed in God. What motivated Nineveh's repentance and belief? Ask yourself, what motivated the Ninevites' belief in God? It, in this case, friends, it was a message of what? Judgment. That A message of judgment can motivate you, amen? Now, there are different ways that we preach the gospel, but if someone doesn't know that they've broken the law of God and they're going to face Him on Judgment Day, then they won't have High motivation to run to the Savior. Imagine if Jonah went through Nineveh and said, uh, I, I've got t uh, a book on five new ways to improve to your life in 2019. How many books would fly off the shelf? Well, maybe a decent number. But Jonah just said, look, you've got 40 days. And somehow, some way, within the hearts of the people of Nineveh, they knew they needed to repent and believe in God. And by the way, the city of Nineveh was a city steeped in idolatry. Gods and goddesses everywhere. Buildings and, and things that had winged creatures and half animal and half man gods and goddesses and, and the, the society was corrupt. And people questioned whether or not there was even a Nineveh until they dug it up in the 19th century. <laughs> This is what the skeptics do. I don't know if that Bible's true. Or Nineveh and those people and the, and the, and the fish. And, the, and then they dug it up. And they found hundreds and hundreds of clay tablets telling the story of these people and their gods and goddesses. 
By the way, this is in the area of modern-day Iran, and they found a grave marker with the name Jonah on it. See, the Bible is real, folks. These accounts are historical. Jonah was a real man with a real call, and he brought a real message to real people. And the people, would you note it? They believed in God. Wouldn't you think it would first say something like this? The people decided to call for a huge fast and say, all right, let's see if we could avert the judgment by going to water and vegetables for the next 40 days. A lot of us would lead with that. What do I need to change right now to be right with you, Lord? What, what 10 things do I need to switch around? No, the first thing the people did, please note it, verse 5, was they believed in God. That's what the Bible says you and I have to do. And maybe that's why it's so hard for a lot of modern people. Because if I had a 20-point bullet list, it might be easier for me to check things off so I could be right with God. But the Lord says, no, I want you to believe in me. And the word belief in Hebrew and Greek is to trust. It's aman in Hebrew. It really means to, to build up or support, to trust in or believe. Abraham believed in the Lord, Genesis 15, 6, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The people believed in God and they, what? They called a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. It was a sweeping revival. How did they believe so quickly? There, there's no story of a backlash. There's no account of a debate. Like Paul's up on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, and the people say, this, this guy's lost his mind. He's talking about a resurrection. No, nothing like that. Simply 40 days, and the people say, okay, I believe, I repent. Would to God that evangelism was that easy. <laughs> but it can be. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like the Holy Spirit was nudging you to share with someone, you share the gospel in fear and trepidation, and the person says, okay, I want to believe in the Lord. And you're like, what? You, you, want, you want to believe? What do I do now? Hold on, let me call the church office. Although you've heard the sinner's prayer preached, you know, a thousand times in your church experience, still you got to call somebody, Right? No, it's just believe in the Lord. Trust Him. Deep down, the Ninevites already knew their gods were false. They already knew their system was bankrupt. They already saw the, the immorality all over the landscape. They already felt a sense of hopelessness and maybe even a sense of wrath to come. And a man came with a message. And boy, had he been through his own trial. And he said, look, you need to turn. And the people believed. You know, let me just say to you, if you're hesitating sharing the gospel with someone, what have you got to lose? They just might believe. Amen? And get saved. 
and start producing fruit. Now, they put feet to their faith, no doubt. You can see it there. They called for a fast. You really know you're serious when you start fasting, right? (laughs) They put on sackcloth. That's an uncomfortable camel's hair garment that was worn by prophets of old. And it was from the greatest to the least of them. People who lived in the best neighborhoods, with the best chariots, to the lowest person on the social ladder. Do you know that the biggest miracle in the book of Jonah is right here? You know, we read the book of Jonah, we say, oh, the, the, the fish and the regurgitated prophet and all of that. Yeah, those are incredible things. But you know, the biggest miracle is that the Ninevites, from the greatest to the least of them, believed in the Lord. Steeped in paganism and idolatry, they had to turn from their false gods and turn to the true and living God, and they did just that. Now, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, verse 6, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes. See, it looks like it started with the people, and then it went to the king. That's pretty cool. When the people decide, this is what we're going to do, and it reaches the ears of the king, and the king got off his throne, as it were, and sometimes that's what we have to do. Can I talk to the guys for a second? Sometimes we need to get off our throne and decide that we're going to lead our families in the coming year toward Jesus Christ. Amen? Men, you've been called to lead. You've been called to lead your families to the Lord. And you might be surprised that once you do, they'll follow you. And so the king got off his throne. He laid aside his robe from him. He covered himself. These are all signs of contrition and humility. He put on sackcloth. He sat in ashes. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. Psalm 30, 11 and 12 says, You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. A uh, scripture from Isaiah that Jesus quotes in the New Testament. It says, To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. Jesus quoted Isaiah 61.1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But then it goes on to say, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The people believed, and then they did all the outward things. And I think the outward things always follow the inward change. If you're trying to do the outward things without the inward change, you've got it backwards. You've got to believe in the Lord first and let him give you a new heart, be born again, and then the outward stuff will happen. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll add all the other things unto you. Let him change your heart. Just pause and take a breath. Just give him your heart. He'll take care of the rest. And you'll be motivated to do the rest. 
And so the king issued seven, a proclamation, literally caused a cry for help to go out. And it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not them let, let them eat or drink water. This probably had to be new in this city, right? A proclamation from the king to what? Yeah, you can't eat or drink anything. No water, nothing. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Here, we've, we're issuing a new uniform. <laughs> Here you go. You're going to put it on. And by the way, it's a little doggy sweater for your doggy too. What? Yes. Fido has to put on a camel's hair sweater for the holidays. How many of you have bought your dog that silly sweater? Come on, you could admit it. Confession's good for the soul. There it is. You put it on your dog, right? Did you talk to your dog in doggy kind of language? Oh, you got your Christmas sweater. <laughs> well, this was a sackcloth one. Everybody was in a mode of repentance. And the decree came, cover them with sackcloth, man and beast, verse 8. Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from what? The violence which is in his hands. The Veggie Tales have done a version of the Jonah story. And in Nineveh, the people were a bunch of fish slappers. So they went all over town and they had fish in their hand and they would slap people in the face with the fish. That was their terrible behavior. Fish slappers. They had to repent of that. They had to put their fish away. Notice they were a violent people. On a serious note, do I need to tell you about the violence in our country right now? In our world? How many of you are surprised when you don't on a weekly basis hear yet another report of a violent act? Is the U.S. very far behind Nineveh? Well, the people, the animals, they put on the sackcloth and the command came from the king. Each of us is to seek God earnestly and turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face, if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. What's your Bible say? I will heal their land. Do you think that there's a one-to-one correspondence between the violence of the land and an unrepentant America? I'd say so. And I think we in the church need to say, Lord, I can look out at this world and say, boy, it's messed up. Boy, these people need to get it together. Boy, that's terrible. Or I can say, as for me and my house, it's going to start right here. Because I know what my heart looks like. I know how easily I can wander from what the Lord's called me to do and be. Maybe it's a fresh time for a do-over for all of us. And so repentance and faith go together. They were to turn from their wicked ways 
Each one, I'm sure, had a different set of things to turn from. But notice the emphasis on the violence that was going on in the land. The Thessalonians were commended by Paul that they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This is 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. And so the people turned. Their wicked ways would include their lies, occultism, sorcery, immorality, violence. All these things were going on in ancient Nineveh. And the king said, who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Who knows? David said the same thing. Who knows? God may spare the child even though David had sinned with Bathsheba. And so... The people are fasting, they're crying out to God. They have sackcloth, the king's sitting in ashes. And here's the final verse of Jonah 3, it's verse 10. It says, when God saw their deeds, here are their fruits of repentance. You can write down Matthew 3, 8, Luke 3, 8, deeds in keeping with repentance. When God saw their deeds, he knew that they believed, but now he saw how serious they were about that belief that they turned, that's repentance, they turned from their wicked way, then God relented. Some of the versions say repented. Concerning the calamity which he had declared, he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The message, you've got 40 days. How long did the people fast? I don't know. I don't imagine it was the whole 40 days, because that's a long time to go without water. But they fasted, they were serious, they showed signs of repentance, and God saw from heaven and relented. Now some of you are saying, does God change his mind? This is a theological conundrum for some people. Because the, some of the ancient manuscripts say that God repented. What do you mean God repented? Well, that's not the best language, but relented is, is good. But here's... Here's a couple verses. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. What's going on here? People have a question. It's a reasonable question. Does God change his mind? Here's what you need to know. There are two major categories to look at here. God makes conditional declarations and unconditional declarations. Example, an unconditional declaration by God is David is going to have the throne forever. There'll be a son of David on that throne. No matter what David did, no matter what the kings of Judah did down through history, there would be the line of David preserved on the throne, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. That is an unconditional declaration. God's going to do it, no condition. But a conditional declaration is something like this. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. But the Ninevites repent. Why do you think God gave them 40 days? 
If he didn't care about them, he would have just destroyed them on the spot. He never would have sent Jonah. He never would have done the custom-made fish. The word never would have come to Jonah a second time. God could have just gone zap, boom, Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone, bye-bye. But God wanted the people to be saved. So it was a conditional declaration based upon whether or not they would repent. And do you know that every day when the gospel goes out, there's a conditional declaration made. If you will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be what? You'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. So God does say, unless you repent and believe, you're not going to be saved. I want to take you to Jeremiah and we're done. And all God's people said, thank the Lord. He's finally, finally going to be done. Jeremiah 18. Let's turn over there. And if the worship team can hear my voice, come on up. This is very important to see in light of this question about how does God operate in these things, especially as it relates to nations. Check it out. Jeremiah 18, 7. At one, one moment, God speaking, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot to pull down or to destroy it. Jeremiah 18, 8. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or, at another moment, Jeremiah 18, 9, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. Let me just pause here by saying, the Bible uses what's called anthropomorphic language, human terminology that we can get our arms around some of these concepts, like God's omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty and all of these things. But here's, just, just read it for what it says. I will think better of the good with which I promised to bless it. 11. So now then... Speak to the men of Judah, now the nation of Israel, and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way. Reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it's hopeless. For we are going to follow our own plans, and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Ask now among the nations, who ever heard uh, the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water from a foreign land ever snatched away? For my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They have stumbled from their ways, from the ancient past to walk in bypaths, not on a highway to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke this. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue. Let us give no heed to any of his words. Wow. 
That's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He came to his own nation, and his own nation wouldn't listen to him. And they went into a 70-year Babylonian captivity, but God, who is faithful, brought them back to the land because God is good. Was God grieved in his heart over Nineveh? Yes. Does he grieve over things that he sees in our land and the world? Yes. But God brought a solution. God became one of us in the person of Jesus. You know what he did? He decided to take the wrath that we deserved upon himself. And that little baby that we have celebrated in the last several weeks grew up to be that man, and he went to that cross knowingly to take the wrath of God upon himself. And he takes the wrath that I deserve. And when the heavens uh, grew dark at noontime, and the earth rumbled, and Jesus cried out from the cross, he was taking my punishment. The good news of the gospel that we proclaim is that Jesus does save us from God's wrath. And it's a motivating message, isn't it? You need to be saved. You need to be saved. Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Just in this message, how many of us have reflected on the last couple of weeks and said, man, I need a do-over, and I need a do-over of my do-over, and a do-over of my do-over, of a do-over. <laughs> but then we look at a cross and say, that baby became that man, and he did what I can't do. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He rose to defeat Death itself, he saves. Jesus saves. That's why Jonah went to Nineveh, because God is a saving God. You know, it wouldn't be too long after this that the Assyrian Empire would devastate uh, Israel. But God said, there's, there's people in this land that don't even know their right hand from their left hand. I want you to go and tell them. And God gave 40 days because he's a God of grace. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you that you're a God of 999 chances plus plus. I thank you that you've been so patient with me. Even after becoming a Christian, how many times I've needed a do-over personally. And I thank you that you're a God of grace, and your grace is seen in the face of Jesus. And thank you that he died on that awful cross, bearing in his body my sin, taking my shame, my wrath, so that I could be free. Thank you he, that he did for me what I cannot do for myself. Thank you that through Jesus, we're saved from God's wrath. It's not a popular message, but it's true. And it's hopeful because we all sense that we've fallen short of your glory, that we've sinned. But thank you that Jesus saves us from our sins. That's why he came, to save his people from their sins. And if you're in Jesus, keep your head and heart bowed, you're saved. You're saved from the wrath to come. You're in right standing with God. Every sin that you've ever committed is forgiven. 
In fact, you have the righteousness of Jesus right now credited to your account because you've believed in the Lord. Good news of great joy. So rest in him, celebrate your salvation. Maybe you've been running from the call on your life, and if that's the case, if the word of God has come to you a second time, just say, Lord, I will go. What I have vowed, I will keep. And then remember that as you share the message, there are people who don't know this salvation. They don't know Jesus. They don't know hope. And you and I are to go tell them. Oh, we're not going to beat them up with a message of wrath. No, we're going to just say, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory and we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And He came. God came to us to save us. If you haven't met him yet, just keep your head and heart bowed. Just believe. It's that simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust him. Don't run from him anymore. Don't try to do the outside before the inside has changed. Just say something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe who you are, that you are God that you came to save me, that you died on that cross for me, that you rose from the dead. I repent of my sin, and I believe in you. Save me. Lord, for those who are crying out, thank you that you are so faithful to save. Thank you that you are faithful to do what you promised. Thank you for hope in Christ. I pray that this coming year ahead of us would be a year of a great harvest of souls. I pray over our nation, over the church in the nation, that you would have mercy on us, Lord. You'd help us to hear the word of the Lord and act upon it, and that there would be a beautiful revival that starts with us. In Jesus' name.